Really good to have you with us. A, a tremendous privilege. You're in Australia. What on earth sent you there? Well, hello, Roger. Again, it's been a long time since we've uh, done one of these real lives uh, outreaches, I guess. And uh, uh, what brings me to Australia? I suppose it's uh, it's my wife. I guess if we were supposed to stay married, uh, then um, I had to come to to where she wanted to live. So we got married in 2004, spent many years in the UK, as you would know. Um, but some of the viewers wouldn't know that at some point, uh, we started a family and uh, Tara had, um, I don't know how to put this politely to British people, and I am British, by the way, but she'd come to the place where she found um, England a, a little cold and wet. <laughs> so she decided she wanted to come back to Adelaide. Uh, and it's just as well we did, because within a couple of years of moving back, um, both her parents passed on. So uh, it was kind of timely and... Uh, uh, but long story short, she was homesick, and uh, we we moved here, and we wanted the kids to enjoy an Australian um, education. So um, great. Well, it's loving. really, really good to reconnect with you. I must say. Um, now, um, since going to Australia, we will go back in time. But you've been on The Voice, which is a sort of who's got talent in Australia. <laughs> Tell us about this, Henry. I, I have rather embarrassingly, um, Roger, yes. I was on The Voice last year. So what happened was um, I started doing a bit of work when I arrived here uh, for the first few years. I've been here five years, by the way. Mm. Um, it took it took a number of uh, years for me to establish myself. And so for the first few years, I was a stay-at-home dad, and I was taking care of the kids. My wife went back to full-time teaching, which she still does to this day and thoroughly enjoys. Mm. Um, but, but I was kind of lost, um, because it was a brand new country. I didn't have any real contacts. Um, and so I, I fell back on one of my passions, which is singing. Um, in addition to doing the odd, uh, evening with Henry Alonga, uh, uh, performance gigs, uh, and also outreaches in churches, etc. One of the scouts for the voice happened to come across my performance. Uh, someone had recorded it and uploaded it to, one of the websites, possibly YouTube, and they're always on the hunt uh, for artists and musicians who are in the army or in the defense forces or in the police, etc. Uh, and long story short, they came across my performance, and, and lo and behold, they decided to send me an email asking me whether I would come on The Voice. Uh, and they didn't say which. Um, but the, so 2018, uh, I, I applied. I got through first round, second round, Etc. And eventually ended up doing a blind audition uh, for a few well-known artists in this part of the world. Um, and so I had three of the judges turn uh, their chairs. They liked my voice. I, I ended up going with uh, Kelly Rowland and uh, I went through three rounds. So I got through my blind audition. Um, I then went through the knockout round, uh, the second round. And then, then I eventually I got eliminated in what's called the battles. Oh. Uh, I sung a I sang against a rapper uh, called Denzel. <laughs> uh, kind of long story short, um, I had a good run on there. I had a lot of support. Um, it increased my online presence, I suppose you could say. Um, but I also uh, had a couple of indiscretions, or at least one in, in any case. I forgot my words on the second round. Oh, no, that doesn't help. <laughs> we, needed, we needed three goes to get it right, Roger. <laughs> they kept, the band just kept restarting. So I think, I think that might have played into my elimination uh, in the next <laughs> round after that. 
but in any case, uh, it was a it was a thrill to be on there. Um, it was quite affirming that people thought that I had a good voice, and out of that came some good opportunities. So I performed yeah, in sure. November with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra um, and the Police Band again, and the Army Band, and another choir called the Adelaide Harmony Choir. So a few doors opened from it, and mm-hmm. I guess that was what I was hoping was that I would just kind of get my name out there, and people would know that I'm. Well, we heard about it in the UK. So <laughs> now I'm glad to... you didn't hear about my forgetting my <laughs> words, though. <laughs> Henry, you were brought up in Zimbabwe. I was. I, I was actually born in Zambia. Um, I was born in uh, Lusaka, the capital city, uh, in 1976. I was born to a, a Zimbabwean mother and a Kenyan dad, uh, and they'd met as medical professionals. My my dad was a pediatrician, and he was working in the hospital there. I think it was the university hospital, and he fell in love with my mom, as as you do. I suppose there was a lot of interaction, and, and they fell in love. And uh, um, my brother was born in 74. He's two years older than me. I always joke that he's always been two years older than me. But in <laughs> any case, um, we then moved from Lusaka, Zambia, to uh, Nairobi, Kenya, Round about the late 70s, and it was while we were there that my mom discovered a little-known fact about my dad, which was that he's actually he'd actually been married before to another lady and had 10 children with her. Oh. Uh, her name is Prisca. Um, she is late now. She passed away a few years ago. Hmm. But um, unbeknown to my mom, um, my dad had uh, obviously never mentioned this prior marriage to her and also the little inconvenience that he hadn't actually divorced his first wife. So this all came out in a, in a, in in a very um, unbecoming way. Uh, She started making inquiries and one of the uh, uh, relatives, I think my auntie, my, my, my brother, my, my dad's brothers, uh, one of his, the oldest brother, his name is uh, Masakalia. Um, So his wife who, Unfortunately, he's passed away as well. Mentioned to my mom that this was a real scenario. She was the second wife. And of course, she was a devout Catholic, uh, and it was just devastating for her because she would never have married my dad if she knew he was married. So that led to a, a snowball of, of many things. One of the things that happened is my mom uh, left the marriage. She basically fled. She didn't even take us with her. She just said, this is too much to handle. It was too distressing. She ended up going back home to Zimbabwe and finding comfort with her family. Um, my dad uh, obviously realized at some point that this was not going according to plan. So he moved with my brother and I to Zimbabwe and tried to reconcile with my mom. But that didn't work, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So uh, the end result of that is my mom lived in one city and my dad lived in another. And we were raised effectively between these two cities, and also I got sent off at a young age to boarding school. Um, mm. So at the age of about and eight, I suspect, I got sent off to boarding school. It was a boarding school where you first had a public performance of of singing. Well, it, it, well, in, in high school, actually. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I would say, so in, in junior school, I, I really wanted to be in the plays. I did. I really uh, loved the idea of being on stage, being part of a choir, or being in the place, but uh, unfortunately, none of the teachers rated me. They didn't. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I was into sport and all sorts of other things, so they they couldn't take me out of that box. They just thought, here's a, here's an athlete and a cricketer and a rugby player. 
what, why would we cast him in a play or put him in the choir? So, uh, but it was a real passion of mine. Then I got to high school, um, and, and you can imagine how going to high school from junior school gives you a clean slate. And I had all these aspirations still inside of me. And so I went for the audition. The audition was run by a lady called Felix Westwood. And Felix Westwood was a special lady at Plumtree, which was my high school. She'd been at the school, I'm guessing something like 25, 26, 27 years when I arrived in 1989. And she she auditioned a whole group of us. uh, And I got up and I I sung with my very high-pitched treble voice. And uh, she had a very wry smile as she wrote my name down. And I thought, that's a good sign, my first play. She's written my name down. I must be considered as part of something. Um, she told us to look at the notice board a few days uh, later, which I did. And uh, two things wiped the smile off my face. The first was the play was called Oklahoma. And uh, Oklahoma is a, is, a, is a state in the deep south. <laughs> and, uh, well, it makes any dark-skinned man very nervous if he's got anything to do with the, with the south in America. <laughs> And the second thing uh, I discovered was that I was cast as a cowgirl in Oklahoma. Cowgirl. So a cowgirl. So I was a girl in my first ever <laughs> stage performance. Um, suffice to say, the funniest part of that story is that um, after our final performance, can't remember how many performances we had, but after my final performance, uh, we were in the green room taking our makeup off, and and I had a lot of makeup on. I was. <laughs> I was very unpalatable as a girl, so they had to cake it on. I should have been in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, I suspect, not in Oklahoma. <laughs> but in any case, um, I, 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 the, the lady, Felix Westwood, was, was um, uh, helping me take this, 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 these layers of makeup off, and she couldn't stop laughing. I said, ma'am, what's so funny? She said, Alonga, I hate to tell you this, but you're categorically the ugliest girl we've ever had in any play. <laughs> So, so, so that was rather embarrassing, and I thought to myself, well, I'm not going to be called a girl ever again in another place. So the <laughs> next um, term, actually the next term, I decided that I was a tenor. I just took it upon myself to declare to the world that I was now a tenor. Uh, there's not a lot of difference between a treble and a tenor. They're both in the high range, and I thought, why not? So I became a tenor, self-proclaimed, and uh, took part in every play after that. Uh, mm-hmm. So in, in, in my Form 2 or Year Two or whatever you'd call it, um, my second year of high school, um, I was a narrator in Joseph in his Technicolor Dreamcoat. No, I wasn't. It, I beg your pardon. In Form 2, I was in the Gondoliers. I was cast okay. as Marco. Um, in Form 3, I was uh, a narrator in Joseph. Form 4, I think, uh, was a play called uh, uh, Salad Days. And then I think right. in the lower sixth, I was in a play called... Annie, get your gun. Mm. And I was actually nominated uh, as one of the best actors in the in the country for that role. Charlie huh. Davenport, I was, uh, but I was runner-up, so they 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 didn't like oh, me no, that much. No, I <laughs> but I got nominated. Multi-time. And then finally, finally, I was Frederick in the Pirates of Penzance. Huh. And so, so so long story short, Roger, that kickstarted my singing, and then I took part in all the choir performances and. Um, uh, took part in in singing outside of school, so I became uh, a, a guest artist at various concerts, etc. And and then music got under under my skin, and I just continued. Even when I ended up becoming a professional in another field, 
Um, I know. Cricket, let's more. find out. How, how did you get involved with cricket? Somebody well, I started, as young, I started as a young boy. I, I, I started playing, I think, around about the age of eight. There was a man who came around to our school. Yeah, his name was Bob Blair. Um, any cricket aficionados out there would remember him as a player uh, who played test cricket for New Zealand many years ago. He had by this stage retired and was, uh, I, I guess, commissioned by the Zimbabwe Cricket Board um, to spread the game uh, amongst uh, the developing communities. Um, so he came to my school. My school, my junior school at the time was a school called Rhodes Estate Preparatory School. I think they've changed the name now. I'm not sure what it's called. But um, in any case, uh, he came and he showed us the rudimentary skills of, of, of cricket, how to hold a bat, how to hold a ball, and, and how to bowl spin, and, and how to bowl in-swing, out-swing, etc. And, and I, I, I must say I was enamored by the game. I really loved the idea of, of being able to uh, use my speed and my pace uh, to bowl fast. I also liked the idea of having a piece of wood in your hand and swinging at a piece of leather. Uh, that was very intriguing to me. And over time, I just got better and better and uh, started playing for uh, my, my school teams initially and then, of course, got promoted to play for my province or um, I guess they call them counties in uh, the UK and they call them states here in Australia. Um, so I played for my province uh and then eventually, just before leaving junior school, I was picked for the Zimbabwe schools team. And uh, that uh, meant that they recognized a talent. And uh, I also I did the same in rugby, incidentally. So I had a lot of sports that I actually loved. There was mm-hmm. athletics on the back burner. There was rugby. There was cricket. Um, but the thing about Africa and the Southern Hemisphere, where I grew up, is that we kind of have two summers. Or put it this way, we have a very short winter in the we would love just one summer but anyway yes i know i I lived there for 12 years i know roger (laughs) um but so um that meant that in the first term and we have three terms in zimbabwe i'm not sure how many terms they are in the three three as well there are four here so i get very confused but um in, in in so in zimbabwe the first term would be something like february march april and then you'd go you know, to in, in the middle of the year, and then in the in the towards the end of the year, it would be September, October, November, a little bit of December, and, you, and you'd play cricket at the beginning of the year and at the end of the year, and no other sport did that, uh, you know, unless you were a swimmer and you're into water polo or something like that. But so for me, uh, I was I was playing cricket twice as often as every other sport, and then as I grew up and as I got older, there was another thing called winter league, which happened in in the winter. So there were various clubs that played each other in the winter. So I ended up playing cricket all year round, in essence. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, as it were, put me in front of uh, particularly um, powerful people, selectors. Mm-hmm. Um, I played with our provincial selector. His son was Heath Streak. His name was Dennis. Uh, Heath Streak is a well-known Zimbabwean cricket player. Well, well, anyway, I played for his winter league, uh, or at least against as well, uh, cricket club and that uh, long story short a lot of whispers started to sort of head towards the capital city that there was this young black African kid who could bowl very fast he wasn't very accurate but he could bowl <laughs> very very fast let's come back to that and, yes <laughs> <laughs> and so um, again in my 
under 17 and 18 years, um, just prior to leaving school, I played for the national teams. And in addition, I was also picked um, to to I could have that wrong. I might have been just picked in my my last year of school. I can't remember. But in any case, I, I played for my province as well in the men's team um, at the age of 18 when I was still a schoolboy. So that kind of put me on the map. And that's what spurred me on um, to then get picked for uh, test cricket, which happened you in the, were the year youngest, after I left. the youngest player, weren't you, to be picked to pay, play for your national team? I was at the time. I mean, I, I've been, that's been surpassed since. Yeah. And the, you were the yes. first, first black player as well to play for your national team. That's correct. So I was, I was, um, I was thrust in, I, I was very young as well. So, so, so uh, young, um, and the odd one out in the room uh, as well, uh, playing against the world champions. Amazing. Uh, at least in one day cricket, at least in one day cricket. So Pakistan. We, we, we'll come back to cricket, but just before we move on to another area, just tell us about the very first, um, test game you played for your, for the country. Well, yes. So my debut was against Pakistan and it was a disaster, mate. <laughs> it was. I, uh, I, a few good things happened, but l- let me first of all, um, lay the scene, the foundation. So, uh, Robert Mugabe, who is now dead, um, was at the ground. So there's already a little bit of pressure. The fact that the president was coming to watch this young black kid make his debut. A lot of history being made, a lot of social, political significance to this moment. Uh, in addition, um, it, it was a splendid crowd. I can't remember how many, but it, you know, certainly a few thousand, I would guess. Um, and uh, walking out onto the field after we'd batted for a, a day and a bit was an extraordinary moment. And the, it was extraordinary because we um, had made 530-something runs against this incredible team. So uh, that was extraordinary. Um, and we were well-placed to win the match from that point on because 520 runs is... is a, I think it was 540. Uh, I, I then... I can't remember when I was brought on. I mean, David Brains and Heath Street might have opened the bowling, perhaps. And then I was brought on and there was a little murmur that went through the crowd. I was obviously very proud to, to play for my country. I was given my green cap. Um, but my first delivery in test cricket was an absolute disaster. Um, I think many people have heard the saying about an erratic bowler like myself that they, they, they you know how they say the joke, uh, he didn't, he doesn't know where the ball's going to land when he lets it go. <laughs> well, Roger, I, I, I never looked at that as a, as a negative. I always thought to myself, well, if I don't know where the ball's going to know how, where, where the ball's going to go, how's the best going to know, right? So I used the element of surprise, but I, I may, I might have been too enthusiastic in my first delivery in, in test cricket. My first ball was four wides down the leg. Uh, <laughs> but it, 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 it wasn't just four wides down the leg. I, I think some Englishmen and Australians will remember when Stephen Harmison played in an Ashes series a few years ago, almost a decade and a half ago. And his first delivery went to, to Freddie Flintoff, who was at slip. Well, they ended up calling that a harmy. Uh, or at least that's what they call it here in Australia. They say, oh, look, he's about a harmy. <laughs> well, I got there 10 years prior to him, and, I, and mine was even worse, but it was on the <laughs> left side. <laughs> so, um, so that's my first ball, very first ball in cricket. So you can imagine all the... The, the, the mainly white crowd looking on and thinking, wow, what have we done picking? <laughs> can't, 
he can't even hit the strip. <laughs> so um, very embarrassing. But uh, I then bowled a, a good ball to rapturous applause with my second delivery. And then I got a wicket with my third. So a man called Saeed Anwar, uh, it was down the leg and he tipped it and, and he was caught. We appealed. I half appealed, but, but anyway, we all gave a big team appeal and uh, he was given out. And so I, I got a wicket with my third delivery after a terrible start. So I was a, a, a hero before my first ball because I was making history. I was a zero after my <laughs> second ball. Uh, after my, sorry, after my, I, I was like, let me start again. I was a hero after I walked out onto the field because of the history I was making. I was a zero after my first delivery uh, because, of course, it was terrible. Then I got a wicket with my third delivery, and I was a hero. And then I went back to zero after that. A couple of things <laughs> happened. Anyway, um, let's leave that. I want to go back now to school because there was a very yes. – uh, other very significant thing that happened at uh, at boarding school, at high school. Um, it was there you became a Christian. Just tell us what happened, because you're you're a multi-talented, multifaceted character. So tell us, how was it you became a Christian? What convinced you that you needed to trust Jesus Christ? Well, I think the first thing I'll say is the schools I went to were quote-unquote Christian schools. So we, we, we certainly had chapel services, and they were compulsory. In junior school, we had a little chapel. Um, we used to sing hymns. Um, and in fact, I think this is the case in both junior school and high school that we used to, uh, used to sing hymns from the English hymnal. <laughs> so very much in the English Anglican tradition. Mm. Uh, in junior school, we had a piano. In high school, we had an organ. Uh, and these were both beautiful chapels. And there were solemn places. There were places where people would come and talk about God, the, the creator of all things. Um, and certainly uh, promote the idea that we didn't arrive here as human beings totally by accident. Now, of course, as I grew older, this would cause a bit of a dilemma. And in high school in particular, not so much in junior school, because in junior school you just accept what you're told. But as I started to, as it were, find my feet as a person and, and start to question things and start to look around and take it all in, I was struck by a number of things. Firstly, I suppose, how delicately poised the balance of life is. Just just how everything just seems to be almost walking a tightrope. You know, if we were slightly closer to um, the sun, it would be too hot. If we were a little further away, it would be too cold. And, and how the balance of everything just seems so right. Uh, there's just enough oxygen for, to sustain life. Uh, everything just seems, there's a thing called symbiosis, which we were learning in biology, where, for example, Bees need flowers and flowers need bees. They kind of work together. There's a synergy in nature and there's an elegance to it. And I, I was observing this and it's quite easy to observe in Africa because, of course, you can get out and you can see the night sky and uh, you can admire the flora, the fauna. And it, those, it, I think if you're open-minded, those things beg the question, how did we, how did this all come, come about? How did it, how did we get here? And I guess, you know, the older I got, the more I started to understand that those were streams of, of thought, uh, sometimes wrestled with in philosophy and other times wrestled with in biology, etc. Um, I've never been a philosopher. I've never been into it. I've never studied it. But, but I had to study biology. It was part of what we did. Um, and so the conflict arose because um, on Sunday I'd be told by some teacher or a priest or a pastor who's come in from the big city, that there's a creator behind all of this. There's a mind, a, d a designer. 
who put all this together. Uh, but then on Monday, I'd go to my biology class or my science class, and I'd be told that that's rubbish. Actually, you don't need a creator. You don't need a deity or a powerful being to make anything. Yeah, All you need is uh, lo- lots of time, billions of years, and random mutations in the gene code, etc. And you can get molecules to man, and you can get life from non-life, and you can uh, see the transitions through the fossil record, etc. So, I, I, you know, I, I was a good student. I wanted to pass my exams, but I also wanted to go to heaven if there was a heaven, as I kept hearing about on Sunday. And so this caused a real uh, place of confusion for me. Um, I think I think psychologists call it cognitive dissonance. It's kind of trying to hold two positions that are kind of opposite to each other. It's like, okay, so if I believe in God, what does that mean for uh, the theory of evolution? Um, it, it seemed that if there's a God, then this big random accident that happened billions of years ago could have been caused by by him. And then, and then I started to get really confused. And so Long story short, it led me on a on a quest, a spiritual quest, to find out whether the two could work together, or whether I, as a person, just had to choose one of these and and, and believe in them and back. And so this quest took me in in all sorts of weird directions. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I didn't want the answer to be the God of the Bible or Jesus Christ, because I think I figured that if it was the Jesus of the Bible, it might have implications for the way I lived. Mm. Um, in that maybe there are certain changes I needed to put in, in, in place in my life, or maybe there are certain things I shouldn't keep doing that I was doing. Um, so I, I always felt that the theory of evolution was very attractive in that it meant that I could live a life without accountability. I, I always I always felt that at the back of my mind, that if that was true, if, if what I heard in science class was true, then it made me feel more free to live my life how I wanted. Um, but I also felt, I, I also felt when I looked around the world that I could witness that there was this thing called radical love at work. It didn't seem to be just a world full of survival of the fittest and it didn't seem to be just a dog-eat-dog world. There seemed to be pockets of beauty in it and pockets of almost the divine. And uh, I would sing and I would feel moved emotionally and I would read the Bible and I'd be moved emotionally. And so there was something inside of me that connected with the Bible in the sense that it rang true for me. I can't explain it any better than that. It just seemed that, I suppose the word is resonance. It resonated with me. And so all of that to say, one of the weird things I did was actually um, went into transcendental meditation. I bought a book called Teach Yourself Yoga. (laughs) Oh, boy. I'm going to give it five rings. And it'll stop ringing. We don't answer the phone here. All right. <laughs> can you hear? Can you can you hear that? We can hear, but that doesn't it's matter. Normally, it's normally it's normally spam. You. It's normally spam. We okay, can hear so you, so it's all right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So one of the things I got involved in was uh, transcendental meditation. So I bought a book called Teach Yourself Yoga, which was supposed to help in one expanding their spirituality, expanding their mind, etc., and maybe finding their purpose in life. Um, and so I tried a number of things in the book. I couldn't sit in the lotus position to save my life. So all the, <laughs> all the funny stretches just 
were impossible for me. I was having my growth spurt. But I was very interested in the spiritual stuff because I think if I don't beat about the bush, I was searching for meaning and purpose, belonging. I wanted to know that my life mattered, that I wasn't just highly evolved pond scum, that I actually had a, a reason to be. And um, there were three exercises in the first few chapters. One of them was, uh, it's all about in yoga, it's all about emptying your mind. And, and so I was emptying my mind and, and imagining, uh, they say empty your mind, imagine nothing. First exercise. Second exercise, imagine um, an apple. Um, so I imagined apples for a few weeks till I got really good at that. And then third exercise was imagine uh, that you're sitting in an apple. And I thought, hmm, okay. So I tried that. I imagined I was sitting in an apple. And then there was, a, there was a, I think, a fourth exercise, which was imagine that um, you've become an apple. <laughs> so uh, once I read that, I thought, Nah, nah. I think <laughs> I think if there's truth, it's somewhere else. And so I started to really pay attention in chapel, and I I also started to fraternize with some guys who were going on a Christian youth camp every holiday. I say every holiday, but I don't know. There were holiday, there were camps put on throughout the year, and um, I remember their names. So one was David, the other was a guy called Piwani, and another was called Dina. And they would always come back raving about how good these camps were and that they loved them and that they recommended that I come. And so I, I blew them off for a number of years. But eventually, when I think I was 15, I think I was 15, I, I decided to relent. And I, I said, why not? I, I, they always came back beaming. They had something that I, I, I thought, man, these guys are the real deal. They've got something uh, that glows out of them. And so I asked my dad to send me on the camp. We paid $250 or whatever it was. And uh, it was a blast. There was a lot of fun stuff, a lot of sport. Um, but there were also serious moments. And in the mornings, we would uh, have a thing called Bible study. It was kind of new to me. Um, there would be prayers. Uh, we, we, we would have a little message. Uh, then we'd go off and have fun. And then in the evenings, we'd have, um, we'd have a thing called praise and worship where people would sing songs. Uh, and then uh, we would also hear an, a message again. And oftentimes it was by one of the senior campers. But uh, when I was 16, so this would have been my second or third uh, camp, uh, the camp director got up and he preached uh, what's commonly called the gospel. And he basically uh, set the case um, for why we ought to place our trust in Jesus. And he started off by saying that God is real. He is a he is the creator, and he has made himself known to us. He's not hidden. He's revealed himself to us through many ways, uh, certainly through the Bible. Uh, there are many oral traditions that have come down through generations talking about the creator who put everything together. And there are many religions that claim they have the one true God, but, of course, Christianity will say that they, too, uh, believe in the one true living God. And this is the God I was introduced to as the creator, the one who made everything that we see around us, all in all its beauty, majesty, and complexity, and vastness and size. Um, and I've, I've always been, I, I've always felt that nature itself uh, testifies to the fact that there's a creator. Mm. I've, I've heard it once said that uh, when you look at a building, you know that there's a builder behind it. And so when we look at a car, we know there's a car manufacturer behind it. And, it's, it's funny though, isn't it, that we see a whole universe which is infinitely more complex than any of those two things and we say, oh, it just happened on its own. And so I, I always felt that it was a compelling message that there's a creator. Um, he went on to then explain that 
unfortunately, we are, uh, as it were, at odds with this creator because and I have no idea uh, how well-versed listeners may be with regards to what the Bible says about man's origins. But the suggestion is that there the were two human beings who were created, Adam and Eve, and uh, they fell from grace by disobeying a command of, the, of God, the creator. And so sin comes into the world, and all of us, every single human being who's ever existed and ever lived, um, has the sin nature in them. And if, the, if you know the rest of the story, a man called Jesus, God in human flesh, uh, was sent to earth to deal with this uh, separation that humanity has with their creator. And so I was familiar with the story. I'd heard it so many times. But on that particular night, I was, I was, I, I was, I, I guess I'd engaged my mind. Um, cognitively, I was, I was, I was ripe for the picking. Intellectually, I was there as well. I, everything just dovetailed to me deciding that the most reasonable thing I could do was to believe in Jesus. There's so much evidence for the fact that he existed. Uh, some secular historians have written about him. Um, Josephus in particular. So he existed. He's a real man who existed in history. And if it was true that he did die for my sins as a, as a sinner, then I was going to place my trust in him. I think in summary, the man uh, read from the book of Romans, um, the case against us, uh, Romans 3.23, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Christ Jesus. And I think uh, he also quoted from uh, the book of Romans 10, in which uh, the Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And, and uh, the, the, the encouragement there is, is to, to believe in the Lord Jesus, to confess with your lips and believe in your heart. Um, and so I did. I said a very simple prayer that he led. Um, and uh, that was when I, I guess you could say I converted. I mean, to be honest, I'd said a similar prayer many times. Uh, we had had the Gideons come to my school handing out free Bibles. We had had scripture union. I'd probably stuck my hand up a number of times saying I'd like to become a Christian or something to that effect. Um, but on that day, I think I was old enough. I was mature enough to understand that I owned the decision. I wasn't coerced. Um, and, and I understood it. I understood what I was doing and the implications of it. Um, and, and, you know, quite simply, if there was a heaven, I wanted to go there. If there was a God who loved me that much that his love compelled him to send his son into the world to die for me, I want a friend like that in the world. And so um, I certainly uh, would say that when I was 16, on the 12th of De- oh, 17th of December in 1992, I, I, I converted. Wonderful. Now, Henry, believe it or not, we haven't got many minutes left, but I do. Oh, wow. I talk too much. Well, <laughs> uh, a bit like me, when God created you, he overoiled your jaw. But it's, uh... <laughs> Henry, I do want to uh, explore a little bit about this, this very momentous time later on, because you were a Christian, you were living for Christ, but now you're playing for the national team um, for Zimbabwean cricket and the World Cup came to Africa, South Africa, and um, and you with Andy Flowers made a very definite stand. And I'd like you just to talk us through that, please. We haven't got many okay, minutes. Well, sure, sure. Well, Robert Mugabe, uh, by 
um, 2003 had been in power for 23 years. Um, he took the, the, the helm uh, in 1980 when Zimbabwe became an independent country. Prior to that, it was Rhodesia. It used to be a, a British colony. Um, and there was a war of independence, uh, and Mugabe led it, or at least was one of the leaders. Um, and all I ever heard about Mugabe was that he was a hero. He was a revolutionary war hero. He'd spent a decade or so in prison, and he was instrumental in bringing down the, uh, or at least instigating the collapse of white minority rule uh, in Zimbabwe and allowing for democracy to come. And so everything I'd ever been told about him when I was a young boy was positive, nothing negative. No one told me uh, that he had dictatorial tendencies, that he did away with opponents, etc., etc. All alleged, of course, but I think the record shows that he was a very ruthless um, dictator. Now, a lot of things happened between when I was a young boy, being taught all of this in school, and my becoming... Uh, a grown man who was playing for his country and traveling abroad and getting questioned by journalists as to whether we should be playing test cricket or being allowed to tour in the world and whether the world shouldn't be boycotting playing sports with Zimbabwe as uh, the, the sporting boycotts of the 70s against South Africa uh, were effective. And it, 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 kind of, it kind of became quite tiring to hear them ask that question. But, you know, as time went on, I started wondering why they kept going on about it. Was this was there a case to answer uh, from Robert Mugabe's side? And so I started doing some investigation. And of course, this is just when the internet was burgeoning. So we're talking about 1993, 94, 95, um, and uh, some websites were popping popping up towards the late 90s and revealing certain things about Mugabe, the fact that he he wanted a one-party state, the fact that he was a Marxist, he, he had Marxist socialist tendencies, the fact that many people had been murdered uh, under his regime, tortured, put in prison, etc. Um, and then a new party came to the fore called the Movement for Democratic Change. And funnily enough, um, a man who became a member of the Movement for Democratic Change was a, was a personal friend of mine, a man called David Coltart. Uh, by this stage, I was a test cricketer now, so we're talking, I guess, late 90s, early 2000s. And he invited me to his home for a dinner once, and it was there that he's the first person who used the word dictator to describe Mugabe, and I was a bit stunned. In any case, he was also a Christian man, and he started talking about our obligation as Christians to speak out against injustice, etc. Um, so a seed was planted. In any case, many years later, so 2002, um, I was selected to play in the World Cup uh, as, as a member of the squad. And while I was there, just prior to the World Cup, Andy Flower approached me and said that a man had approached him saying that Zimbabwe shouldn't play in the World Cup and stay silent about what was going on politically in the country. And he was a Christian man, and he said, it, it, it really is incumbent on Christians to stand up and condemn evil. Uh, I happened to be reading my Bible one day. I, I was by this stage involved with an orphanage called the Mumvuri Project. So anything to do with uh, the downtrodden, the, the outcast, the, uh, I guess, the, the, the unrepresented resonated well with me. And I was reading my Bible one day, and I read the scripture in Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 17, which is in the Old Testament. And it says, contend for the widow and the orphan, rebuke the oppressor. And so you can imagine, the minute I saw orphan, uh, I, I, uh, something leapt at me. And secondly, uh, rebuking the oppressor, um, 
uh, really spoke to me. Uh, there was a time, I guess, eons ago when God would send prophets to speak to powerful kings and rebuke them, so to speak. And I sort of sensed that that was what I, I, I was having deposited in my heart. And so I started asking myself some tough questions. If we, when I say we, I mean we as people or, or even as Christians, see injustice in the world uh, and stay silent, are we somewhat complicit? Um, I'm not saying we are, but I'm just I'm just saying those thoughts are running in my head and and I remember a man called Edmund Burke saying, all that's necessary for evil to prosper is for good men to do nothing. And so a lot of stuff was churning inside of my 24, 25-year-old mind. And uh, it all led to a moment of reckoning. Uh, and Andy Flower met with me after a net session, maybe a month or so prior to the World Cup, and dropped this bombshell that he thought uh, this other friend of his, his idea was actually a good idea, that we should do some kind of protest or, or show the world that we disagreed with uh, the regime in Zimbabwe and we wanted to stand up for the downtrodden and the outcast and the orphan, etc. Um, long story short, as you mentioned, in the first uh, match we played in against Namibia in the World Cup of 2003, Andy Flower and I did a black armband protest. Uh, we protested wearing these black armbands or pieces of black insulation tape and we were ostensibly standing up against the regime, asking them to stop uh, their human rights abuses, etc. And you can you can find, I mean, there have been a few th- documentaries put together about it. I've, I've done some work with the BBC. You can find things on the internet. And you can also find the statement we wrote as well. It uh, was really protesting the death of democracy in Zimbabwe. It was. Mm. It, it was. And uh, the death of democracy, of course, is a nice catchphrase. Mm. Um, but ultimately, we were standing up. Uh, for those who didn't have a voice. Uh, and naturally, as you can imagine, dictators don't really like being having suggestions given to them to be nicer people. Um, so uh, that resulted in a few consequences for me. Well, I very got, significant ones, because really now your life was under threat. Yes, it was. So I got dropped from the team, death threats came my way, and in the end I had to flee. Uh, but just tell us, because it was an amazing sort of providence of God to get you out yes. of the country. I think this is quite remarkable about the cyclone. Just explain that, please. Well, the the the, the, the day prior to this final match, um, I realized a couple of things. First of all, uh, my whole life was hanging in the balance. If we lost our final match against Pakistan, um, and I wasn't playing by this stage, I was a bystander, um, Uh, we would get eliminated from the the tournament. And if those death threats were true, then, of course, who knows what would have happened to me. Um, So, and and the other thing is, uh, if we got a draw out of this final game, um, we would progress to the next round, or if we got a win. A win was unlikely. But if we got a draw... Against Pakistan. uh, Against Pakistan. (laughs) Yes, okay. uh, My life would be preserved because the next round was being played in South Africa. That would give me uh, the opportunity to leave the country and then decide what to do from there, maybe go into exile, etc. Well, as it turned out, with everything riding on this final result and a draw being probably the friendliest and most likely... um, I went to my hotel room the night before and I got on my knees and I prayed to the God that I've believed in for a number of years that he would find a way out for me. I didn't dictate any way. I just, I just thought my life is in your hands. If I live to see another day, 
uh, it'll be through your providence in some way. And lo and behold, there was a cyclone off the coast of Mozambique. Now, it wasn't a nice cyclone. Cyclones are destructive things. But what happened was the cyclone was very instrumental in my life being saved because it moved far enough inland, um, I think 800 kilometers by my estimation, uh, from so let's translate the, that the, 500 miles 500 miles from the east coast of Africa to the to the middle of the continent and it, it, it rained the game off we, we basically had to abandon the game as a draw because of the rain but normally and, cyclones uh, would stay on the coast wouldn't they yeah they do I mean they can move inland somewhat but they dissipate at some point but this one I mean if you go that far inland uh, so it was very uncanny, it really was, that I'd prayed for uh, some salvation somehow, and it happened to be rain that came and uh, saved and preserved my life. And, and by the way, this was in the middle of summer, lots of very dry in that part of the world. Uh, so very unlikely that it would rain on the day it rained. Um, so I think that a cyclone was very instrumental in my And so you got process. to South Africa. How did you get out of South Africa as well? Well, again, I would say it's the providence of God, just like the cyclone. I, uh, I got to South Africa, and I then got uh, some invitations to come or to go to the UK to do a couple of things. One was to play cricket for a cricket club called the Lashings World Eleven, who I was associated with for about nine or so years. And then I was also uh, involved with uh, the BBC and Channel 4, who were doing the cricket broadcasting of that summer. And lo and behold, Zimbabwe were touring. So they asked me if I would do some commentary for them. I don't think they thought I was a good commentator. I think it was more the fact that we had uh, Richie Benno and Mark Nicholas and uh, Dermot Reeve and a few others. And, and if I could just come in they here. They might have struggled to pronounce those African names. <laughs> <laughs> Henry, if I could just come in, because you're, you're not only a great singer and sportsman, but you're a super artist and you did the official portrait of Richie Benno. I think we're going to show a picture of that because you are really quite an artist. But anyway, go back to the, go back to the South Africa story. Um, so, so long story short, I had, I had the invitation to come or to go to the UK, but I was still stuck in, in South Africa. So I, and uh, for me to get to the UK, I'd need to buy an air ticket, but I didn't have any money. I'd left Zimbabwe, and by this stage, I'd made my mind up I wasn't going back, but I was very poor at planning. I didn't have anything with me. <laughs> I just had a change of clothing and some of my cricket kit, and that was it. Um, I, had, I had a bank card, however, a, a Lloyd's TSB bank card, <laughs> uh, which which allowed me to withdraw cash. Um, and I suspect I would have had to go to this ATM machine about a mile away from where I was living, uh, maybe 10 to 14 times or something like that. So it's a mile there and a mile back. It's a two-mile round trip. And I don't really like walking, Roger. You know me. I'd rather get in a car. Um, but after maybe day four or five, I was a little bit put off by the walking there. And I thought in my heart, gosh, wouldn't it be easier if someone just bought me an air ticket? Well, lo and behold, I had been on a big TV station called CNN, Cable News Network. Uh, I had uh, given an interview about what had happened to me in Zimbabwe and throughout the World Cup and fleeing into exile. And a lady called, by this stage I was in hiding, by the way, a lady called Charlene Hantegold had interviewed me. And a man had watched it somehow on his TV screen and felt drawn to my story. Well... In any case, this man tracked my number down. I have no idea how, because um, 
uh, only a handful of people knew it because of safety and security reasons. Uh, in any case, uh, this man tracked me down and he, he wanted to have a meeting with me. So I relented. I wasn't sure if I could trust him. I didn't know who he was, but I went to his offices and cutting a very long story short, I ended up meeting him and his boss. And his boss uh, sat me down and said to me, um, he knew my story. He was very sympathetic. Something similar had happened to him. The dictator had wanted his company. Uh, he'd said no, so he, but he was going to be thrown in jail. So he had to flee and start afresh in South Africa. And he said, I'm drawn to your story and I want to help you. And he said, I, I actually own an airline um, and I'd like to help you. Can I give you money? Can I give you an air ticket? And my jaw hit the floor because only a day or so prior to that, I'd said in my heart, wouldn't it be neat if someone bought me an air ticket? And a total random stranger tracks me down and offers me an air ticket. So that man unfortunately passed away, like a lot of people in my story have. Uh, his name was David Tokov. Uh, he was a very wealthy man in South Africa. And he said, if you come back on Tuesday uh, or Monday or whatever it was, uh, he said, uh, I'll fly you to wherever you want to go. And hmm. I said, I'd love to go to the UK. And with a handshake, I left that office and started my new life in uh And did you fly to, to Leeds Bradford Airport? Did I fly to what, sorry? Leeds Bradford Airport. No, no one no <laughs> one in their right mind would fly into Leeds or Bradford. <laughs> no, I can't remember. It probably was Heathrow. Yeah. Um, and I was met there by uh, the man who really put in a lot of legwork to get me over there, a man called David Fold, the chairman of the Lashings World Eleven. And mm. uh, so he was so kind to me. He gave me a home. I lived with him for a couple of years. And then started my new life in the UK. And then, of course, a couple of years uh, on from that, 2005, I think it was, I, I was asked to uh, share um, my story at uh, a harvest uh, dinner, I think they called it, uh, somewhere in Suffolk or, or somewhere in Kent. Um, and uh, I think it was Suffolk. And, and a lovely couple. Uh, a lovely uh, brother and sister, actually, Mary and Ivan, and a man called Victor Jack. And uh, a man called Victor Jack may well be known to a lot of people in, yes. in the UK. Uh, he used to do tent missions many, many years uh, ago. Uh, and in effect, that got my name out. And, of course, eventually, somehow, you got a hold of me. And I spent many, many years uh, going all over the UK, sharing in churches, sometimes with you, many times with you, uh, and also doing weekend uh, conferences and going to schools, uh, the odd prison here and there, and just coming to people with the message of the goodness of God towards humanity, that, that God hasn't abandoned human beings. If you, if you feel like your life has no meaning, no purpose, if you, if you feel there's got to be more to life than this, well, uh, I loved passing on the message that there is. And not only is there more to life, but there's, there's also hope beyond the grave that when we do leave this world, uh, and, and uh, I, I have sympathy for everyone in the UK because the, the reports of, of COVID-19 and how uh, devastating it is are reaching us here in Australia. Uh, in South Australia, we're very lucky, but death is close to all of us. We have no idea when we'll breathe our last. And to have the comfort of knowing that you are at peace with your creator that he offers you the opportunity to live in heaven uh, for eternity with life without end, everlasting life, 
without the fear of God's judgment, separation from him and eternal torment. I mean, it's just an extraordinary thing. I know it's not a popular teaching nowadays, the idea that for every heaven, there's, there's also a, a dark place with terrible, terrible consequences for us. Um, but no one has to go there. You just have to have an open mind to believe that behind this incredible place, there may well be a creator. And that creator actually is interested in me, and he loves me, and he wants me. Um, that, to me, was a mind-blowing revelation when I was a young man. I think I've been a Christian now 20, my maths is rubbish, 28 years, I think. So, uh, and in that time, I've had ups, I've had downs, I've almost died three or four times. Roger, we haven't touched on the other times that I almost died. But um, in that time, I've come to find great uh, comfort in knowing that uh, there's a creator who's doing life with me. It hasn't made my life easier. I don't think becoming a Christian means that all of a sudden um, all problems disappear and evaporate. No, actually it can be a very hard walk sometimes. I, maybe even harder than just uh, you know, doing it on your own. But I think the incredible promises of God are, and you can take this to the bank, that if you place your trust in Jesus, uh, you will inherit eternal life. Um, mm-hmm. And God can't lie, according to the Bible. So if you do that, it's a tremendous comfort to know that all these can be yours if you're bold enough and brave enough to place your trust in Jesus. That's wonderful. We're going to have to leave it there. But you did write your autobiography. I don't know whether it's still available. What was it called? It was called Blood, Sweat and Treason. Now, I do have to I do have to warn people. If you go lo- looking for a book in my name, you might find two other books that I have nothing to do with. But... <laughs> People claim I wrote them. One's about giving up smoking. The other's about finding your purpose in life. I, I had nothing to do with that. I only, I've only written one book. It's called Blood, Sweat, and Trees, and my story, Henry Alonga. The other good news, Roger, is that um, I will be releasing my audio book soon as well. Huh. So the, the paperback or hardback may well be hard to find. I don't have any in stock with me here. I don't even think my publishers have it listed on their website anymore. Um, you might find copies on the internet. I have no idea. But, uh, for certain, I will try and make uh, an audible type version audiobook soon available to people. So, uh, watch Great. this space. Henry, thank you very, very much. Real joy to be with you again. And thank you for all you've shared. Um, and the Lord bless you, your family, your wife and two girls who are growing up now, 10 and 8 years of age. But God bless you. And uh, you're welcome back to the UK anytime, Henry. God bless you. It's always a pleasure, Roger. God bless you too and everyone in the UK. Thank you. Well, that was quite special, wasn't it? Thank you very much, Henry, though he'll be fast asleep now. Um, if you go on Google or YouTube and um, uh, just type in Henry Longa, uh, uh, the voice Australia, you'll see him performing. And he, he's a great singer. He, he really is. But it's super to have Martin with us. Uh, Martin lives in Eastbourne. He's a, a, a gospel worker, Christian worker, who works very closely with us. We always enjoy Martin. Uh, so Martin Povey, it's, it's over to you, please, if you can share with us and draw everything to a close in these last few minutes. Wow, what a stonking interview there with Henry Alonga, this multiply talented guy, Henry the Voice Alonga. I don't know about you, but the, the closest I've ever got to something like an appearance on The Voice was probably my grade four piano exam, where the examiner invited 
me into the room and said, I'm going to hit a note and I want you to sing it back to me. Now, that all sounds pretty reasonable until you realise that I was a 13 year old lad and uh, singing a note back wasn't going to end well. And it certainly wasn't going to start well either. And as he said and played the note D, I remember just sounding immensely like Tarzan. And I don't really think things have got much better since then. But we all can't be as talented as Henry Alonga. I'm sure none of us are really all that well gel of, of Henry. But anyway, let's put that to one side for the moment. One of the things I really loved about what Henry had to say was was the way that him and Andy Flower stood up for the truth at the risk of of their lives. The way they challenged the authorities, Robert Mugabe and the regime in Zimbabwe, about the atrocities that they were were doing. And, and and really what that that story shows us is is that in life we can either be people who are gripped by a love of power or we can be people who are gripped by the power of love. And I, I want to draw on that story that was uh, was shared with us and read out from the Bible at the beginning um, of this meeting tonight. And because this story really does bring out those two things, the the love of power and the power of love. And the Bible wants us to move from this place where we love power and come to this place where we are transformed by the power of love. Let me explain. Let me go back to the start of the story. We read that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, followers of Jesus, disciples, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. Now, James and John weren't thick. They weren't a couple of sandwiches short of a picnic. They knew who it was they were asking this question of, will you do whatever we ask you to? They knew. They knew that it wasn't just some random man down the pub who was just this regular kind of guy. But they knew they were asking Jesus, who they had seen actually genuinely had real, authentic power. They'd seen him raise the dead. They'd seen him heal the sick. They'd seen him open blind eyes. They'd seen him still a raging storm with a couple of words. They'd seen him start the fast, the first fast food restaurant when he just multiplied bread and fish from, from his hands to thousands and thousands of people. They'd heard his teaching. They'd seen the effect that his teaching had, this power that it had, that it cut people to the, people to the heart and changed them. They'd seen that Jesus had this power. And so it makes sense that if you want something done, you go to the one who's got this immense raw power. What was it they asked Jesus in response? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. What they were asking for really was a throne. They were asking, if you like, for the first slice of the pie. They were asking for the first bite of the cherry. They were asking for the best seats in the house. What they were wanting was they wanted to be at the top and they wanted other people to serve them. They wanted to have other people under them who did what they wanted them to do in their lives. Now, you can imagine the reaction of the other disciples when they heard this. And it wasn't a big thumbs up. No, we're told there in verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They locked horns. They were outraged by by their request. How could they say such a thing? Thing? How dare they? Now, why why were they so indignant? Now, 
it, it may be because Matthew's gospel tells us that it wasn't just James and John who asked this question. Actually, they got their mum to approach Jesus and ask Jesus the question. So was it that they were outraged that, that James and John were mummy's boys and were just saying, mummy, please, can you do our bidding for us? Were they outraged by that? Possibly, maybe, who knows? But the real issue is what Jesus picks up on. Listen to what Jesus says in response. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. You see, Jesus lifts the lid off their hearts and off the hearts of people in power in the nations. He lifts and exposes the hearts of all of us right here. And he says, look, the reason that you're so angry that James and John have asked that question is really because you, like us all, have the very same issue. You're angry because you want that position of power and authority. You want to be up there and you want other people to do what you want them to do. And when Jesus uses that phrase exercise authority, that's that's the kind of idea that's being behind this. This idea to grab at power and to use it over and against other people that we want control. We want to have first dibs at the donuts. We want to call the shots in life. And the Bible calls this sin, this this kind of this this raging urge in us to act for the benefit of me at the expense of others. And it's a problem that each one of us is enslaved to. We want to benefit me at the expense of other people. You know, back in, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, when the word sin is first mentioned, God describes it as like this deadly predator that is crouching low so that we cannot see it, but it's wanting to devour us. We don't even recognise um, how how inbuilt sin is in us. We don't even recognise how me-centred we, we really are often, and we're going to be devoured by our, our sin, the Bible says. And what we end up so often doing, though, is instead of recognising this or admitting this, we end up, if you like, spinning a story, spinning a, a truth. In cricketing terms, we we, we, we bowl a Roman, we uh, bowl a googly um, to ourselves and other people in our, in our heads and hearts. And we, we say, well, if everyone just listened to me and if everyone just thought about life the way that I do, then life would be so much better. And And all of us think that. And all of us think, therefore, I want that position of authority so that others will do what I think and the world will be a better place. But the problem is, one, we're blatantly wrong on that. But secondly, when everyone's thinking in that way, which we all do, mayhem results, relational breakdown occurs. We don't love God and we don't love people as we should. And we're just these 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 creatures that are seriously enslaved to to putting ourselves um, above others uh, and not loving as we should. And I guess the question is, is there a way out? Is there a way out of this this, this nagging um, way of living that we all have? And Henry brilliantly said, yes, there is. He told us about his story of how he became a follower of Jesus. You see, the way to deal with this 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 constant love of power is actually to replace it with the power of love. And this is what Jesus says in response he says not so with you instead whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all for even the son of man 
did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus makes the point that when we love power, we love to grab and, and get. But if we actually realise what it is to be truly human, we'll be transformed by the, the power of God's love. And that doesn't mean grabbing and getting. It means giving. And Jesus says, this isn't just something I've come to tell you to do. This is something that you're only going to be able to do because I'm first going to do it for you. And that's when he comes out with that beautiful, brilliant, stonkingly good, using that phrase again, um, sentence. When he says, look, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, for many. When Jesus uses this phrase, son of man, he's using it of himself. And it means two things. When he says the son of man, what, it, what he's saying is it is that he is the human being. He is the true human. That if you want to know what it means to be truly you, to be truly a human being, then you must look at Jesus. Because here was a human being who got life right, who loved God, who loved others in a beautiful, brilliant, powerful way. Um, he's the true human. That's one thing it means. When he says the son of man, talking about himself, it also means that he is the true God. It's a phrase from a, a book called Daniel, cha uh, Daniel in, in chapter seven in the Old Testament. And, and in that, that passage, we're told that the son of man would be the one who has all authority and power. So this phrase son of man, it means that he's, he's the true human. It means he's the true God who has all authority and power. And the question is, the one who has all this power, this raw power, could do anything he wants. What does he do with it? Does he use it to oppress other people? Does he use it to blame shift? Does he use it to just annoy people and hurt people and damage people? No, 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 he doesn't. He uses his power to do what? To come and serve you and to serve me, to serve Henry, to serve Roger, who did the interview, to serve every one of us who's listening right now, everyone in the entire world. He used his power to come and serve you and to give his life. And that's what I find absolutely amazing about Jesus. He does with his power what none of us would do. We want to use it to put ourselves up there and, and use others. Jesus is completely the opposite. He comes down to lift us up. Henry had a, had a brilliant phrase earlier where he said that the creator is interested in me. He loves me and he wants me. And that's really the conviction you get when you hear the good news of Jesus, when you hear what the Bible says, that the creator of the universe isn't this distant weirdo who has no interest in you. No, he loves you so much. He came into this world and became one of us so that he could lift us out of the pit and give us his brilliant life. This is the God we're talking about. This is Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life as a ransom. And the word ransom means to to buy you out of slavery, to buy you out of that, that sin that is like that tiger devouring you. Jesus came to pay the price of that, to take the jaws of death onto himself as he died on the cross, bearing your punishment, bearing your judgment so that we could be set free and liberated to be truly human. And to be truly human, remember, means to be truly like Jesus. Have you wondered why, why Henry was able to, to live like he did well, and stand up against that injustice in that way? It's because he had been transformed by the power of Jesus' love. 
And Jesus says, sadly, unless we come to him, then in this life we will continue to live for ourselves and we will continue, therefore, to lock horns with everyone we meet. And that will go on into eternity, this this eternity of people bent in on themselves, curved in on themselves. And Jesus says, that is a place called hell. It's a place I don't want you to go, a place I came to buy you away from so you don't have to go there. And so Jesus says to you and says to me, do you want life? If you do, come to me. Come to me because it's only in me where you find it. And you'll find it not by putting yourselves up there and putting others down. You'll find it by going to the one Jesus who came from heaven and came down to, to earth for you and went down into the very depths of the grave for you and burst out of the grave three days later and ascended back to heaven for you. He is the one who was up and he came down to lift you up to him. Will you come to him and enjoy the forgiveness and the freedom to flourish as a human being, both now and forever? If you want to do that, why not pray this prayer along with me now, which is a way of saying, Jesus, I realise that I'm this, this sinner. I realise that I'm the one who's got life wrong. Please will you come in and forgive me because of what Jesus has done. If you want to receive Jesus now, pray this prayer with me. Father God, I just want to confess right now that I know I am a sinner who uses others, exalts myself to put others down. And Father, I'm sorry for the, the way I've lived my life in that way. I pray right now that you would forgive me because of the price that Jesus paid on the cross for me. And Father, I pray right now that you would lift me up in the resurrection power of Jesus into his life. And I pray that I would walk now with Jesus as my Lord. And that from now on, Father, you would cause in my life, my life to be transformed by the power of your love so that I lay down my life for others too. And that I serve others and that I flourish as a human being by being like Jesus. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Thanks very, very much, Martin. That was very clear and very helpful. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. It's really good to have you. Uh, we look forward to being with you again next week. I'm going to be, well, I don't know whether it's me or somebody will be interviewing uh, Sir Jeremy Cook, High Court judge, and finding his story next week. Uh, but look, if we can help you at all in, in becoming a Christian, please get in touch with us. www.reallives, there's a two L's there in the middle, reallives.net. Gladly send you information about how you can become a Christian or if you need a, a New Testament or suggest some daily Bible readings to get you going, please get in touch with us. We'd, we'd love to be of help. Well, thank you for joining us and uh, God bless you this weekend.